0: Well, good morning. It is good to be together today. I hope you have your Bibles. This morning we will be in Psalm 65 here in just a moment. We'll be there for the entirety of our lesson today. And as you can see on the screen behind me, our songs fit very well with what we're about to talk about. The joy of salvation is what's going to drive our thoughts today. We spent last week thinking about how much we need God, that we desperately want a relationship with God. We looked at the tax collector who was at his end of his rope. We talked about how we are excluded because of our sin and should be changed in how we approach the Lord. Our desperate need for salvation changes how we live, how we think. We are a new people because of our desire for God. We need salvation. That's where we left off last week. So now we need to continue that thought. How do we, what happens when we find salvation? What does that look like? What, how do we respond once we are taken from desperation to salvation. This is a search we often use the New Testament for, and rightly so. We find salvation through Jesus Christ, being baptized into his name, finding grace through his blood on the cross, hope through his resurrection from the dead. And we find that hope on every page of our Bibles, looking to Jesus. Acts 4 says it like this, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be Saved. But Jesus, the New Testament writers and preachers of the books of Acts, all use the Old Testament to teach us about salvation. It colors in the lines for us. We see each teaching, each sermon, each miracle is informed by the Old Testament imagery and how they viewed salvation. We build upon that. So it helps us to better appreciate the joy of salvation of Jesus if we can see how the Old Testament writers looked at salvation. And David writes about salvation often in the book of Psalms. Just listen to this. I'll just pick, I picked a few of his lines that he wrote about joy and salvation. I had to stop because there were too many. I might have picked too many. Psalm 13 verse 5, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Psalm 20 verse 5, may we shout for joy over your salvation. Psalm 21, verse 1, O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exalts. 40, verse 16, But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. And 51, verse 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. I only picked the ones that were in the same verse and the ones that stopped around Psalm 50 because I didn't want to keep going throughout all the entirety of the psalms. But the number of times that joy and salvation go hand in hand is extensive. It is everywhere in the book of Psalms. And especially so in our psalm for today, Psalm 65. The David pairs joy and salvation. And that's where we're leading today. That's where our psalm is going to end today. So we're going to get there. But we're going to have to build to it first, because David's got to find salvation first for him to have joy in it. So let's start by reading our psalm together. We'll see it in its entirety, and then we'll see some parts of it to get to the joy of salvation. Psalm 65, starting in verse 1. Praise is due to you, O God in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. By awesome deeds, you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded in with might who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers, and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. What a beautiful psalm David wrote for us to talk about today today. And in it we see the joy of salvation, but we start in the beginning of Psalm 65 where David is searching for salvation. This I'm primarily pulling from verses 1 through 3 where we see David looking for a closer relationship with God. The psalm begins, as most psalms do, with a statement of praise. It's almost like a heading that we're reminding us that this is how they worshiped. They used these in song at the temple and to prepare themselves for worship and to be in worship to their God. And different versions say this first line differently. The ESV says, praise is due you, O God. If you have the New American Standard, it says, let us all keep silent before him. I just say that to point out there are lots of different ways that we can show honor and revering to God. He is praised in many different ways. He's praised in our high exaltation, the best we can give, and he can be praised in our lowly moments of silence where we fear and respect the Lord. But the psalm starts off by showing us God deserves all honor. He doesn't get honor just because we like to praise Him, because it's fun for us. He gets honor and praise because it is due to Him. He deserves our praise, our honor. When we come to worship on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night, we benefit from it. We're encouraged. We're learning something. We are spiritually motivated for the rest of our week. And that's a good thing. But all of those goals are secondary. Because do you know what the primary goal is? Praise is due the Lord. That's why we're here. He deserves us in our seats, ready to give Him our best so that He can be praised. The first goal of worship is always, did God get the praise He deserves? And so we need to remember that as we start this psalm. We're serving a very great God who deserves our best, and that should be our first thought and last thought as we come together to worship. The second part of verse 1 is it has this heading of what God deserves, is vows are performed to Him. Vows are kept to God. How we show that is we keep our promises. We've all made promises in the sight of God. If we've been baptized into Christ, we have promised that we are going to live a new life Like Jesus Christ, we are dead to our past lives and raised up from the water in new life, looking like Jesus in the way that He did. We've got to keep that promise. As we come to worship, as we live our lives pleasing to God, that promise is forefront for us. We make promises to each other in the sight of God. Marriage vows often end with something like this in the sight of God and all these witnesses. That's something that we do. It's a vow that we make and should keep because it is before God and God wants that vow to be kept. And God has an expectation for these vows to be kept. I mean, it was a barrier when the vows were broken. I mean, the covenant of Israel was broken time and time again. And by the time God had finally decided he needed to punish them for it, the punishment for their their lack of of honesty in their vow was meeting the covenant. The number of years that they were to stay in Babylon was in comparison to the number of Sabbaths the land had missed. It was because they missed their vow that decided their punishment. God cares that we keep our vows. So worship should always be in accordance with how honest we are with God and with each other. For us, that means we live like we promised when we were baptized. Our old life is put to death. We're risen in a new life. So that's the heading for our psalm. God is worthy of all praise, and He changes our life. So, why do we praise the Lord? The rest of the psalm shows us that. And the thing we see is in verses 2 and 3, God is there for us. In verse 2, He's there for us in prayer. David shows who is eligible to come before God in prayer. All flesh comes. I love that God is described here as you who hears prayer. That's such a personal way to praise God. I mean, God can be praised in a lot of ways. He has a title for almost everything we can think of to show his power and his glory because he is an all-compassing God. But you who answers prayer, you who hears prayer is a very personal. You hear what I say in the most private moments directly to you. And it is true for everyone. Everyone who sends their prayers to God is heard by our great God. God is a God that saves us and listens to us. Verse 3, he is there for us in mercy. David is overwhelmed by sin when iniquities prevail against me. God is there for him. David is sometimes overwhelmed by sin in his life. And we know this happened in Psalm 51, where David cries out to God after his sin with Bathsheba. He asks for forgiveness. That's where he says what we quoted earlier, restore to me the joy of my salvation. When he was lost, all he wanted was that joy and salvation once again. David knows what it's like to desperately need God to restore him. And so David here says in faith, you atone for our transgressions. David knows not only that he forgives his sins, but God is able to forgive collectively all sins. He's able to forgive the congregation. God forgives those who come near to him. Do you notice how in verses 1 through 3, they're coming to God? That's how I broke this up. In verse 4, God starts to come to the people. And we're seeing how that changes. God brings us near. But before we get to that, I want to notice, just periodically stop down and see how Jesus fulfills these. And verse 3 is a clear spot where we can see Jesus. Atoning for sins, atoning for transgressions is Jesus. Luke chapter 7 and verse 48 says this, And Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who are at table with him begin to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus shows us this psalm perfectly. He came and saw our sins, but He didn't turn away. He didn't give up on us. Instead, He died for us. He showed that He was there to atone for our sins. While iniquities prevailed against us, Jesus perfectly removed them from us, showing salvation that we can seek mercy from Him. We need God to hear our prayers, and we need God to forgive our sins. That's where this psalm starts. And the first part of the psalm shows us that we can approach God with both of these things and He is there for us. We need to start here because salvation doesn't mean much to us if we're not in a place of desperation. If we don't see our need, we're not going to have joy in salvation. So David sees his need here. He needs a God who hears his prayers and forgives his sins. But let's keep moving because in verse 4 it changes who is acting because we're finding salvation. Blessed is the one who... You choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. God is active in salvation. God brings us near. God chooses to bring us near to his courts. He is giving us a place to stay in his temple and his uh, courts. The place that God dwelled was in the most holy place in the temple or tabernacle. I mean, if you remember, that's a place only one person can go on one day a year. It's exclusive. It's exclusive. It's not a place where you can just walk in and dwell. It's not a place where you can just invite yourself in. So David is saying, let us dwell as close to you as we possibly can. Invite us into the most holy place if that is what you are willing to do. Invite me closer. Never let me leave the presence of my God. He has no better place to be, no more important idea for his life. David wants to be close to God. And God is inviting people closer. That's what we see in verse 4. God is so good that He brings people in. He brings them closer and wants them to be in a relationship with Him. And you know, the same is true for us. We see this all throughout our New Testaments. He has given us a place with Him. He has guarded that place. Peter says it's imperishable, undefiled. It is there for us, guarded in heaven, that we might find salvation. In this you rejoice, is what he says in 1 Peter chapter 1. We have a place with God. We have an invitation to come closer to God. What a joy that that is. In verses 5 and following, we see that God is a God of salvation through righteousness. God is a God of awesome deeds is what it says there first. David has seen God do awesome deeds. He's defeated the Philistines. He saved them from Saul. He's helped David in battle after battle after battle God is a God of awesome deeds. He knows that. He has seen it with his own eyes. He's experienced it with his own shield. David can confidently say that he sees God as the one who does awesome deeds. God has proved himself to David time and time again. So many Psalms are written by David during a time of crisis, either before or after the crisis, and We know David sees God as one who can answer because he's always praying to God for an answer or thanking God for an answer. And David often sees him answer with a bang. These mighty deeds are God's way of showing he can save David. But then it escalates because it's not just mighty deeds by a powerful God. It's mighty deeds by a righteous God. You answer in righteousness. God isn't just powerful He is fair to his people. He treats them with love. He invites them closer. He is a God who does right. And he shows that by giving salvation to David and to Israel. What a great God he is. He shows his salvation through righteousness. And he also shows his salvation through power. And that's verses 6 and 7 in the first half of 8, which we'll look at here. Because we see the hope going to all the ends of the earth. This power of God is everywhere. It spreads, and God's salvation is seen throughout the entire earth. This is true of God throughout the Bible. In our Exodus class, we're about to get to this, where the Red Sea and the ten plagues become significant world events, so much so that 40 years later, Rahab in Jericho, many miles away, has heard of the salvation of this great God, and it causes her to respond in faith. She is amazed at the salvation of God, that it changes her behavior decades after the act of God himself. I mean, think about how the news of Jesus spread. I mean, the fame of God, the salvation of God is rarely kept quiet. Usually it spreads more and more. And in Mark's gospel, even if Jesus asks someone not to share... The gospel spread so quickly that people can't even keep a lid on it if they wanted to. In Acts, the news of God's salvation quickly spread beyond Judea to the utmost parts of the world. We're seeing it time and time again. God's salvation is powerful and it extends across all borders to all corners of the world. There is no containing the salvation and power of God. We also see His power of salvation proclaimed through creation. And we see that in uh, 6 and 7. You establish the mountains, being girded with might. You still the roaring seas, the roaring of the waves, the tumult of the peoples. God's salvation is written on every part of this earth so that we might turn to Him as we see Him glorified through His own creation. He stills the roaring seas, the roaring waters, the tumult of the people. What we're seeing there is God is taming the untamable. The thing, if you've been to the ocean, can you imagine if all the waves suddenly just stopped and it was smooth as glass as far as the eye could see? It's hard to imagine. There is no power on earth that could possibly ever tame the seas. Otherwise, we would have tried to do it by now. We would have tried to do it because can you imagine how much better it would make sailing? If, you know, there's no such thing as a storm, you're just gliding along. There's no such thing as seasickness. You don't have to worry about it. It is just smooth sailing, right? We have that phrase for when we hope it'll go as best as it can. When we ship things across the sea, we could go faster. We could do more. People would have tried to do it, but we can't. But God can, and God is able to tame the seas. He's able to tame the waves, and he shows his power of salvation through creation. Of course, we see Jesus right here in the psalm, don't we? I mean, Luke chapter 8 says this, One day he got into the boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid and they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even winds and water that they obey him? Jesus shows us the same power is happening through his salvation. All miracles point us to the ultimate salvation. The small salvation that happens on the waves points to the greatest salvation that keeps us from sin. That's what Jesus is showing us here. And the power of God through salvation causes everyone to be in awe of the signs that they see. So that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at these signs. God is working. He is bringing salvation to his people. So as we come to the end of our psalm, we see the response of salvation. We know what's coming here. We have joy of salvation. In the second half of verse 8, you make the going out of the morning And the evening to shout for joy. And in the section from 8 to 13, we have a picture of the rain watering the land. And it's this ongoing picture where animals are are fed because of the rain, the crops grow, the grass is green. We see God's joy and salvation through nature. The joy of salvation is compared to how the rain waters the earth in the summer. I mean, we know how much rain is a blessing during hot times like this. It it means a lot to us. We get really excited when we see rain coming because maybe it will break the relief of whatever this temperature is right now. But we don't have the same appreciation as David and the people in their time did because we often don't grow our own food. And rain literally meant life to them. Rain meant I can grow a meal for tomorrow. I can live another day because God has given rain. It's salvation. It comes from God as a sign of goodness. So David rightly compares rain with salvation, that we see God's rain to fall on the just and the unjust as a sign of His salvation. Jesus makes that point in Matthew chapter 5. God's love extends to us like the rain falls on the earth. It is life that is given for us. It is a picture that God is providing for our most basic needs, and God is providing for our spiritual needs. That is the salvation of God. He is giving life or otherwise we would die of thirst. We would be helpless without Him. So of course this psalm ends in joy. Of course this psalm points us in a direction where we can rejoice in the Lord seeing how good He is. Joy is seen throughout the end of this psalm. It's repeated three times at the end of verse 8, verse 12, and verse 13. We see joy. And you know that they didn't have exclamation marks in their time. They didn't have emojis. They didn't have a way of saying, this is important. Take a look at this. But they did have repetition. And if they repeated a concept, it was important to them. It was the point that they were trying to get across. And so what we see here is joy is essential to our response of the gospel given to us. When we are saved, it is something that we worship for. It is something that we are grateful for. So we see that joy because we started away from God where sin was prevailing over us. And now he has given us life, brought us sustenance and changed the way that we need to live. We are needing the grace of God. And the same is true today. Jesus has changed our life. He has given us cause for joy because he has given us eternal life. He has given us a way where we can overcome sin through his grace and his power and have hope of a life with Him in heaven. What a great God we serve that gives us the joy of salvation and shows us what we can be. The joy of salvation is here for us to see. God is a God of salvation. He wants us to be saved. He has always shown it throughout the Bible. So I pray that we can see that salvation, and it can motivate us to have joy in His name. Because salvation will change how we live We are living lives responding to the salvation we have found through Jesus Christ. We are joyfully living in obedience, ready to serve the Lord who has changed our fate. And salvation should change how we worship. We aren't just here because we have to be. We aren't just here because it's something we feel like we should do. But we're here because we are praising the God who is due all praise for what he has done for us. We are desperately wanting to glorify Him because He has changed our outlook on all things. He has given us life forever. We are overwhelmed with thankfulness and joy because of Him. So we are greatly impacted by the grace of God. This shortly shows us what God has done for us and what we can do to respond. And that might just be look at your world differently. You are people saved and given joy as a result of what God has done for you. So Mitchell is going to lead us in a song that will praise the God of our salvation. I hope you consider how great he is. Let's stand as we sing.